Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Salt Lake 2002 Retrospective Podcast, a back-of-house look at the planning and delivery of the Salt Lake 2002 Olympic Winter and Paralympic Winter Games, as told by the very people who organized them. I'm Christian Napier, and I am joined once more by Ed Einan, who uh, has very graciously given us a lot of his time to share so many wonderful stories with us. Ed, thank you once again for joining us today. Thank you, Christian. I hope our listeners aren't uh, totally tired of you by now. <laughs> well, if they find themselves comfortably numb, then that's fine. But uh, I think we're going to be okay. The stories have been fantastic. In our last episode, we spent a lot of time talking about the volunteer program that you and so many of your colleagues there in the committee constructed and how successful that was. I'd like to spend a little bit of time talking about the counterparts, the paid staff programs that were implemented uh, I've mentioned on a couple of podcasts how I thought the perk of being able to lease a GM vehicle was absolutely genius. But why don't you tell us a little bit about the approach that you took to, you've already talked about recruiting the right staff, but you know, keeping them motivated and retaining the talent that you had invested so much time in recruiting and, and training. Yeah, well, this experience uh, was unlike anything else I've experienced in my career, where the day you started you were also given in your hire letter the day you were being terminated. <laughs> so that in and of itself was unique, uh, in my experience anyways. But, uh, you know, obviously, like you said, you start with the right people who tend to motivate themselves. And that was huge. Again, the workforce had a lot of people that had some experience and there was a lot of people that had no experience. I don't know that that... Um, mattered in many cases because in the end most of the things associated with the games can be learned i think things like uh accreditation might be a little trickier <laughs> tom shashevsky and the gang but uh you know there's a lot of things uh, that i think are quite portable in terms of learning so it does start with the the best team that you can get in in the field of play uh, but yeah, there's there's things uh, you want to keep everybody fresh. Everybody was working very hard. Mitt set the tone early on. You want to have fun. So I do recall that, um, you know, one of the things we did early on was we put Mitt out in front of the group on a regular basis. And we call that all slock and all slock, you know, all hands on deck, basically. But it was, you know, it was the, uh, the, the time and place for him to motivate the group, which he was so good at. And we also uh, tried to do other things that motivated the group. We had speakers come in. We had people from the White House. We had um, uh, Mickey Abar, I remember, coming in. Dick Ebersall came in, as I mentioned earlier, that uh, he came in and showed his special video as the head of sports for NBC. Uh, we handed out Lima Bean Awards. That was an award we put together to honor a SLOC member who had been dished a terrible dish of lima beans and made something really good out of it. Uh, we also had the FitCap Awards that were designed to award those who best exemplified our SLOC culture. Um, we had athletes demonstrating their sport. Uh, you know, just a lot of fun things to do. But one of the things that really infused an extra ounce of, of, uh, of fun was uh, having Beth White come in and be our guest MC. Now, after a while, it began to dawn on people that it's only Beth White. Are there other guest FCs? So we said we would start mixing it up. We would draw from a hat or we would do some sort of uh, secret ballot vote. But it always ended up being Beth White <laughs> by design because 
though she was serious about her job, as we said, one of the, the bullet points, don't take yourself seriously at the same time. And she infused a lot of serious fun and laughter. And we think that was helpful. So the all slot meetings, another one, again, keying off of NIT's uh, fun was the peak of the week. And uh, we call that POW for short, but it was in the Wells Fargo building mainly where on Wednesdays uh, we would get together and we would rotate through the various departments. They would own that particular Wednesday and it might be an ice cream social or some sort of fun activity or a sports demonstration um, to gather all slot together and to spread out. We were otherwise spread out to the building, but this brought us all together. You mentioned, um, you know, the one of the benefits that was the fastest subscribed benefit I've ever seen. Uh, there was extra VIK from Chevy, and and I think it was Al Matasoff was helping us with that. But uh, there was others too. But in the end, it was uh, we made, as I recall, you could have any Chevy car except for a Corvette. Uh, Cadillacs were in play and everything else, uh, but there were the one tier of of cars available for $150 a month. And that included, I believe, insurance and everything. And the other higher tier was $250 a month. And depending on which car you selected, you would pay either the $150 or the $250, which is pretty darn cheap for a brand new car. And the other aspect of it was after 3,000 miles, you had to turn your car back in and get a new car. <laughs> I thought that was fun. So if you were in that program, you always got a new car. But that was, uh, I'd never seen anything so lightning quick. I don't think everybody was able to do that at the time. So we sent it out and it was just rapidly subscribed to. But yeah, that was a fun benefit. I think another thing that was real was you knew you had a termination date, but we were concerned that the greatest pressure would be at the time of the games because that's when you need people the most, but that's when they're closest to their termination date. And so we thought, what could we do to make sure that they have comfort that there's life hereafter? And so we put into those uh, various hiring letters a retention bonus. And later, uh, some work from Gordon Crabtree, Crabtree and uh, um, Brett and, and Fraser and Mitt, we were able to say we're also, in addition to that, going to try to put together uh, some additional help in terms of benefits that uh, you'd need to sign up for after the games, maybe you needed a car and so forth. So we tried to put together a little bit extra uh, in addition to that retention bonus. And that was very well received. I think we didn't, I don't know of any incidents where we lost a critical player uh, during the games because they needed to go find their next job. And uh, we also had turned to the community once again for a lot of, um, volunteerism. We did that on other programs. I know Nancy Hitt had done some things with uh, venue chairpersons. We had 25 mayors of the day. Uh, this was all, I think, inspirational to the SLOC group because we were seeing celebrities and local heroes joining us on some of the efforts in addition to our SLOC team and, and the Team 2002. So I think that was helpful. But uh, yeah, when you think about uh, all of the uh, Judy, you know, she was out there involving uh, youth sports and cities and towns and things. So we, we really uh, did some things there. But, but I think the whole 
just the confluence of all the community joining with us had its own inspiration as well. Um, so I think there was just a lot of things that way that encouraged us. Uh, I, can I just give a shout out to a few leaders real quick? Oh, of course, I, I, of course. I know, I know I'm going to absolutely step all over myself here and mess it up, but I just think there were a lot of leaders outside of my group that were so instrumental and some within the group that I hadn't mentioned. So I'm just going to go down a quick list real fast. Tammy Beaven, Rich Kennedy, Lisa Wardle, Christian LaBarbera, Jamie Shaw, Darcy Holder, Allison Paradise, Holly Rasmussen, Leslie Johnson, Rob Parks, Kristen Lundgren, Kristen Bailey, Daniel Pacheco, Bronwyn Barnett, Andrea McQuarrie, Joanna Zipser-Graves, Brett Sterrett, Maureen Sweeney, Jill Beckstead, Brett Milburn, Lane Critchfield, Renee Rump, Bob Bills, Ron Durant, Greg Greenfield, Wendy Zerline, Spencer Zwick, so, so many others. But then coming down to some of the leaders, you know, some of the, the leaders in the other functions, you know, you had, of course, in addition to my own group and Frank and Mitt and Kelly and Cindy and Grant and Dave and Brett, Bill, Mark and Fraser. I want to mention, you know, Kathy Priestner, I think I mentioned her before, but Mark Lewis, Scott Givens, <clears throat> Jerry Anderson, Sharon Kingman, Ray Grant, Gordon Crabtree, who came back. You know, he was the key lead early on in finance and then came back uh, in this more of a supporting role. Doug Arnott, uh, Don Pritchard, Frank Zang, Caroline Shaw, Beth White, Jenny Borncap, Bill Shaw, Frank Katz, Don Sterling, Alice Mahmood, Mike Huerta, uh, Alan Matasoff, Jim Brown, Tom Shusevsky, John Benyon, Matt Lehman, and uh, just so many more. Uh, Got to give a shout out to Donna Tillery, uh, the great support she gave to me in the CEO office. And I could mention thousands more, but those are the ones that come to mind that I kind of interacted with a little bit more. And I just wanted to say, without these people and many, many more, uh, I am not the reason we had a great workforce. These are the people that were the reason we had a great workforce. Well, there's a there's a lot of names there, and <laughs> and I remember those people, and and I do have to go back to those benefits. Thank you for getting those. <laughs> I, now, as a as a father of three small children and then four small children, I was in the $150 bracket renting minivans. Uh, but uh, that was a fantastic benefit. And then the the retention bonus was definitely a very, very welcome, comforting uh, cushion <laughs> to the conclusion of the games. And so thank you personally. Uh, thank you very much for instituting those, those initiatives because I thought that they were very, very important. We've talked a lot about the great work that's been done with the workforce, but as you mentioned, you had this whole international relations side as well. Perhaps you can just spend a few minutes talking about the work with the NOCs, the work with the Olympic Family Services, education, and uh, so on and so forth. Sure. With Ina, again, pros all the way. Um, a couple of things. You know, the uh, Olympics uh, countries are put into five regions. So with Ina, she and I went to several uh, regional NOC events around, you know, around the world. Uh, we went to a lot of interesting places, Japan and Poland and Costa Rica and uh, Amsterdam and just a lot of places. But uh, essentially, um, there were symposiums, there were places to negotiate with the countries, uh, you know, everything from transportation and stipends if they didn't stay in the Olympic Village or training and so forth. And 
um, you know, Ina was the, the tip of the spear on that. She just did a marvelous job and I was along for the ride and tried to do my best to support her and help. But yeah, there were uh, these regional meetings that were constantly held. So we were in touch with all these various countries. But every six years, there's a, something that brings all of the country NOCs together. It's called ANOC, Association of National Olympic Committees. And the one that happened to land in our time period uh, was the one, uh, I believe it was in 2000, but uh, it was down in Rio. And it was in one of the largest halls I've ever seen in my life. But all these countries are there, and there's a big dais group up there. And Mitt had flown in just hours before he was to speak. This was a three-day event, but he was only there real quick to do what he needed to do and get out. And I remember him, uh, you know, he met me at the hotel, and I said, well, you know, I've got a few things to cover. He said, well, let me get a shower first. And uh, long story short, he had me follow him to the room just before his shower. We covered a lot of things. He quickly showered, and we went and did all these things. And one was to get up and speak. And as soon as he spoke, he turned around and we left and he did all the things on the list and then got out of there. But uh, not before we had a chance to go up on and see a little sightseeing for an hour, the mid style. It was take some pictures, let's get out of here. But uh, we went up to the Corcovado statue and saw that. And But uh, that was one of the big events um, where all the National Olympic Committees come together and, and Mitt uh, was the shining star. And, and Ina did such great things. But yeah, she, she built relationships like the Norwegian group. We sat with them that day. And, you know, it just made everything so much easier in terms of the preparations for the games. And that was a key key role that uh, was played by Ina. On the uh, IOC side, Marina was a, a pro. She was there for everything. She's been through all phases and she knew her stuff very well. She knew the protocols. She knew what was required of us. She had the relationships. You may recall that the IOC uh, moved their offices from Lausanne to the Little America in an effort to make sure that it wasn't all the pomp and circumstance. They didn't choose the grand. Uh, I think uh, Jet Set Sports, or maybe NBC were over there, but they ended up uh, going to Little America to kind of downsize. But they were there several months ahead of our games and operated out of there uh, for all of their protocols, their charter, the things that needed to be done. But Brina was just a pro and, you know, everything from pre-games, but during the games, you know, taking care of the Olympic family in a superior way. So, uh, again, my job was easy because I had such pros managing those those functions. You mentioned this trip around the world for the NOCs. I remember you and Darren taking another trip around the world to look at <laughs> uniforms. Well, you know, in, in our role of, uh, you know, Darren had a huge hand in putting together the TPC, the Team 2002 Processing Center. You may remember it was on west side of the city, off of Bangor. That's where all the uniforms were distributed, all of the uh, Team 2002, uh, you know, keepsake items and tickets for the workforce, uh, you know, Jenny, her team. Uh, that was all done. But before all that, before the, the uniforms were fully completed, um, we had the notion that reporters would be coming from all over the world to our games, looking for stories. And one of the stories that we thought might be a little bit sensitive was that Marker, who was the uniform uh, sponsor of the games to help us get those, get Team 2002, you know, properly uniformed, 
they were subcontracting to uh, other facilities and sites around the world that weren't necessarily in the U.S. So we thought, well, gee, is there a little bit of exposure or sensitivity and we should have answers to how, what conditions were these uniforms put together if they weren't in the U.S.? And so we did put together, Darren and I went with two others, uh, Marker's uh, head of, of that company, Daryl Santos, and I can't remember her last name, Linda, but she was the manufacturing executive for so the four of us, went literally around the world in six and a half days. We, had, uh, we started in uh, Tel Aviv, uh, drove to the border uh, of Jordan, and it closed just minutes after we... <laughs> We took a bus with a bullet hole in it. It was pretty scary stuff, but we ended up in Amman, Jordan. That was one of the, the sites. Uh, there was different parts of the uniform being done in different parts of the world. So we ended up in uh, Amman. We ended up in Hong Kong, Bangladesh. Bangladesh did a lot of the work, but I believe Hong Kong had the fleece. So we had a pretty complicated uniform. Um, but in the end, we found positive things. We found that the workers were happy. We found that there were hot meals being served. There were clean environments. There were medical facilities on site. They allowed for religious practices. So we thought we were ready for the press. We had pictures. We had uh, stories that uh, supported the, the good conditions that was healthy, suitable, and so forth. But it never came. Actually, it came when Mitt was running for president. We got uh, some, some flack on the uniforms. I got called by ABC one time talking about that, trying to find, I guess, holes that, uh, you know, these uniforms were put together in the wrong parts of the world or something, but we were ready. It just never came during games time, but that was the purpose for it. And if I can just stay on the uniforms for a second uh, on that, Christian, that, you know, uh, Scott Gibbons team, the look of the games and so forth, but we teamed up as well. Uh, Darren and I and others had a hand in trying to pick the uniform. And one of the things we learned from others, like Sydney, for example, they had a cast system. If you were a higher level person, you got more of a formal uniform. If you were more in the rank and file, you got more of a casual uniform. We, we, did, we thought that worked for them, but we didn't think that that would work for us as well. We also saw other games where they had all kinds of different types of, many types of uniforms. And we thought, what if we had kind of a leveling where everybody wore the same uniform, but we had four different types of colors, you know, so that it could designate uh, different you know, functions that you were you were being called into to, to serve. And we did pick red, green, yellow. And I remember specifically Mitt picking a, perf a, a certain kind of blue. He wore it uh, when he first showed the uniforms. It's on the book, of, the cover of his book, uh, Turnaround. But he's wearing the shadow blue, not, uh, not royal, not cobalt, but it's a uh, mountain shadow is what it was. And that was handpicked by Mitt. But yeah, one of the things that was funny about all that is when you think about Nagano, the warmth of the games, but it was said that they weren't super helpful. They didn't know English maybe and so forth. That was one of the criticisms that they themselves shared with us. But also they, in that helpful, you say, well, maybe you need to have materials that are handy. So what about, what did Lillehammer do? Well, they had a backpack, which is cool, but it was hard. You had to pull it off to access the information inside of it. Sydney had the fanny packs. Well, I don't know about you, uh, Christian, but you know, I don't, not too many of us look great in a fanny pack. Uh, and, and so we said, well, that's handy, but it's not that classy. So we went with a European style cross pack, we called it, 
that went across the body was accessible, but it wasn't like a fanny pack. And um, we thought that was fairly well received. We did have a few uh, fun people, and especially male in Slock, that called it a man purse or a merce. But uh, I, I think it went pretty well for, for the games. But that was, again, looking at other games and seeing what did work, what didn't work, and trying to come up with something based on their key learnings. It's interesting you mentioned the Crosspack. We did a podcast, I don't know, a month or so ago with Lori Morenci Kuhn, uh-huh. who actually had her Crosspack with her while we were doing the podcast. And she said, I still use this Crosspack <laughs> today. And I've mentioned this on a couple of other episodes, but those uniform elements, those components uh, still survive. I still use the shoes and the gloves and the hat when I shovel snow. I still have the little wallet uh, that I use every day for my for my wallet. So the legacy of the uniform lives on. One thing that I wanted to talk about, if it's all right, we've had a few guests mention this as one of the highlights of the games for them. And that was the passing of the torch amongst the staff right before the games. And so I'm wondering if you can just give us a little bit of detail on the torch relay and how this passing of the torch amongst the team members, the staff members, how that came about. Sure. You know, the torch, uh, as you know, emanates from Olympia, Greece. The rays of the sun are used to light the uh, torch for our games, and it runs around Greece for two weeks. Uh, Several of us had a chance to go on over there, and it was an interesting time. We actually went on November 17th. If you look historically... That would be the worst day to visit Athens <laughs> because of the history and the anti-American sentiment usually expressed on that day only. And a few of us stayed behind uh, for a day and others went directly too. But uh, that ran around for two weeks. And then it starts on uh, the, usually the, the, the last place where the games were held on that country's uh, soil, right? So it started in, in Georgia and um, Atlanta, and it was uh, Peggy Fleming and and uh, Muhammad Ali. A lot of people don't remember that maybe, but that's who started the first leg. There were two tenths of a mile run, right? And it was 65 days. I think we hit 46 uh, 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 country, or states, and uh, many people got to run um, as part of the overall run, but not everybody. Uh, I know my run was in LA and I got to run with my brother as my security guy who ended up running as a security guy for for uh, Magic Johnson who made the news that night in LA. Uh, there they were running side by side, so that was fun. Um, and if I could just say one thing about uh, the Olympic torch, then we'll get to the passing. Um, you know, of all of the special moments, uh, that's one of my top moments was actually being able to go a couple of times representing SLOC and received the key of that city or whatever, and to see uh, how people responded to the torch, riding on the media truck was the best place because that's where the local media would set up to be right in front of the runner carrying the flame. And so I got to be on the media truck a lot of times when I went. And I remember a vivid day. Um, It was uh, coming around uh, Lake Tahoe. Uh, it had stopped at Squaw Valley, which interestingly enough is one of the properties that we own in my company today. Um, but anyways, 
as we went around that lake, I remember being on the media truck and watching how special it was to see the runner run. But what was even more special or more moving, I should say, was watching the people watch the torch run. And everything from bikers that are waving flags and just people that just, it brought everybody together. But the one thing for me that was so special is we were coming around that lake and there was a mountain rolling up this way. And I looked out, everybody's watching the runner and I'm looking up this hillside and way, way up there, nobody's seeing it, I'm seeing it. And there's a A-frame house, there's a guy out on the deck He's in full uniform, a military uniform, and he's at, he's saluting. <laughs> to this day, it still gets to me that watching this man have such reverence for our country and for this moment, sitting there where nobody can see him, he's in full uniform, at attention, saluting. To me, that, it doesn't get better than that, to see that happen. So there was, there was magic around the torch. You could feel it going through. I remember being on a peninsula in San Diego and feeling it before I could see it coming through the audience. And there was just something special. So some people got to run the torch in the regular relay, but a lot of people did not. So the idea was let's let people actually handle the torch. And I recall, I think it was over, didn't we do that over at... Uh, uh, where the bricks were, the, the legacy experience. Wasn't that over there? Was, was it at the gateway? I think it was at the gateway, or maybe not. I, I don't remember. It was either there or Gallivan Plaza. Yeah, maybe, it was Gallivan. maybe it was Gallivan. But, but I think it was designed to let people feel the torch for those who didn't get the chance to run in it. And I know a lot of our folks, not a lot, but quite a few people did get to run in the regular. But for those who didn't, and, you know, sometimes it just wasn't feasible, Right but it was designed to let them feel a piece of that emotion. So the torch runs, it culminates in the ceremonies, the opening ceremony of the games, the 1980 U S hockey team <laughs> lights, the cauldron, which was a spectacular moment. Why don't you take us through games time? What was a day in the life of Ed Einan like during the games themselves? We know it started with a year out. We had that event over at the university of Utah, uh, where the stadium, where we were all put into our groups and we, it was kind of a mock games. I think it was like game or game day 12 or 13 at one point where all kinds of challenges came at us, all kinds of issues. And I remember being in our subgroup, how many things came at once. It was, you know, uh, 30% of the workforce didn't show up because of influenza, um, a, a bus carrying the IOC, uh, just fell off a cliff and killed multiple people of all things, horrific as that would be. But all these scenarios, in fact, I remember they were coming in from a central source um, to all these different groups, and there were so many issues coming at us at once, it almost became unmanageable. There were just so many at once. And yet, over time, people figured out and made the right moves uh, was the assumption as we did our debrief. And we were so prepared, but at games time, we had a main operations center. And that's where, you know, a lot of the key leaders of the group of those functions, even though everybody was in their venues, you had a, a central place where prepared for things that needed to be decided or issues that came forward. After a day or two, frankly, it was 
pretty non-event being there in the MOC. You know, you, you, there was nothing much to do there. Things were going so smoothly. And, and I think I, I remember a lot of us feeling that whatever we've put in motion, whatever our part was, it's got a life of its own. It's just going to happen. And we really can't fine tune it from here. It just is going to happen. But the idea of ready for the worse and being in that MOC never materialized. Uh, these games were largely error-free. And as a result, our team looked at each other and says, hey, we could be doing this on the road. We could go mobile. So we went mobile and we actually got to attend a few events. And that was real special. But I think it was all attributed to how prepared everybody had made themselves, how good they were. And, uh, you know, the, the work that we'd done a year earlier to make sure anything nasty could be um, theorized and dealt with. And when it actually happened, it was much more smooth than we ever fully envisioned, I think. As we've gone through this conversation, you've mentioned learnings from previous cities. You've mentioned Nagano. You've mentioned Sydney. Did you have an opportunity to participate in any observation programs uh, where you got to see previous games editions and how did that help you? Yeah, we actually, a group of us got to go over to Sydney during their games and actually park ourselves in the MOC. They were very gracious to let us see the the heartbeat, but we also spent time out in the venues and uh, a lot of uh, key learnings came from Sydney. You know, I, I just was always impressed the power of one individual who faced with uh, unexpected issues. Maybe it's people crowding into event or leaving event and you know not sticking within the lines or the stanchions. You know, how do you deal with that? But I, I, I learned that humor, uh, and Mitt was right on. I mean, with the fun piece, humor solved a lot of tense situations. And I remember at our opening ceremonies coming out with a couple of my, my girls afterwards and waiting to get on one of the buses to take us back to our cars and seeing the flow of people, everybody just trying to leave at once. And you're only putting on what, 60 people on a bus at a time, but remembering that person who happened to be the volunteer helping out that night and cracking jokes and, and doing little fun ditties right out of Sydney what they did as well to just diffuse all of that tension and the frustration that someone might feel for waiting two or three hours to get out of there. And uh, it, to me, that came directly from there. You know, the uh, we learned from um, a, a lot of groups. We had people consulting with us from other groups. So those were, those were very valuable things. But seeing it actually in person happen, I would always recommend that for future games is to make sure they get that chance uh, uh, as many as they could to, to see those experiences and to read about their experiences. Cause you know, you learn what works and what doesn't over time and you, you build on the shoulders of others who have already been there. Well, you have a great time during the games, the Olympic games, the Paralympic games, you pull those off. When I say you, I'm talking about collectively you and your team, the games end and the HR team is kind of one of the last teams to wrap things up, you know, along with accounting. So what was that like post games for you, the dissolution period or phase of the games? And then uh, where do you go from there? Yeah, obviously sad for all of us. You know, we had built this team. We all, all built it and we all felt uh, camaraderie and we were colleagues. And it's like graduation day, knowing that 
you know, from high school, you know, that some people you'll never see again. And, and it was kind of uh, elation for having done well and having other people think so, but also the, you know, the fear that, you you know, what's next and <laughs> what do you, um, you know, you're not going to see some of these people. One of the things we learned from Sydney too was uh, they had only targeted, they only found 10% of their people had game opportunities after you know, they're, here they are at games time, and only 10% actually had another job to go to. We committed to a much higher number than that and used volunteer uh, individuals, community leaders, business leaders. And you may remember, we put together a job placement, Lisa Wardle, Steve, we put together a job placement uh, coaching team, volunteers that could coach two, three, four slot people, take them under their wing and help out in any way. Um, but the downside was, you know, the timing. We were just months away from 9-11 and a lot of companies were um, only a shell of themselves. Uh, travel wasn't happening as much. It was starting to pick up again, but there were companies that were much more cautious. So the 90% the that we had hoped to have, estimates were maybe half, maybe 60% actually got it. We, we think we did better than others, but it wasn't exactly what we wanted, but uh, the retention bonuses helped and and we did what we could. But uh, in the end, um, yeah, it was sad. We we moved out of the big Wells Fargo building, went back to 257 and uh, it was a smaller group. And, you know, it was uh, a mixture of feelings. But, you know, we, we did learn that uh, there were a lot of uh, other games that really couldn't cope as well with you know, what do you do after the games? It's such a high, it's such a wonderful thing. What do you do, go sell soap? You know, I mean, it was it was something that faced all of us, but uh, yeah, we did our best to give leads and help and have others help us. And Mitt was writing letters to companies, uh, et cetera. So we tried to do what we could um, and hopefully everybody landed pretty well or retired after that. Many people went on to the games, most of us didn't and uh, landed pretty well, I think. Well, I would just say as an aside, um, you also try to keep it light because it's a, it can be a heavy time and a stressful time for people. And I remember you having me bring two dozen Krispy Kreme donuts to the office every day. Post-games. <laughs> that was a nice touch, Chris. That, that was very wonderful of you to do that. Well received, too, I might add. <laughs> well, it was on my way to work, so it was easy to it was easy to stop in there. So your tenure ends with the Salt Lake Organizing Committee. What do you do next? Yeah, for me, uh, again, Steve uh, Steve Clark gave me a lead. He was actually doing a pretty good job of getting his own leads. And I recall that uh, a recruiter out of Atlanta with Elliott and Associates had uh, uncovered an opportunity at the Cheesecake Factory running their HR team. And and uh, Steve concluded that he didn't have the necessary background and told me about it. So it's one of the few things I reached out for. And uh, long story short, I ended up at the Cheesecake Factory for five years. And that was, uh, and then I went from the Cheesecake to here uh, almost 13 years ago. So uh, to KSL Resorts. All right. Well, we're coming to the end of our trilogy here, uh, the Salt Lake 2002 podcast. You mentioned some of the comments about the best games ever from Dick Eversall. And 
you have also talked uh, throughout our conversations here about several really key figures. Among those, uh, one who recently passed was Bob Garf. And so I'm wondering if you can take a minute to to uh, give us a little bit of thought on him. I know you had a comment here in your notes to me about the Bob and Kathy Garf story. Well, Mitt had a, nice, a lot of nice things to say at Bob Garf's uh, funeral. And it's interesting. Um, I was living at, um, for 12 years down in Rancho Mirage. Well, it turns out that Bob actually had a place down there uh, a few blocks from our home. And so there were plenty of opportunities after the games. I got to see Bob um, and Kathy. And I know Brett Hopkins, who you know now runs uh, Bob's stuff, uh, but Brett comes down there quite a bit as well. But it was actually, from what we understand, he actually picked up the coronavirus while he was down there in that Rancho Mirage area. I had already moved to Irvine, so I didn't see Bob on this last time around, but got to see him over the years and just what a gentleman he always was. I interviewed him at the very beginning. He's the guy I saw the most after the games. But one of the, you know, I mentioned the guy saluting at the, you know, at the torch relay. An equal emotion for me was uh, Kathy called me. It was, I don't know, a few months after the games were over and asked if I could get a torch and meet her and Bob in Bountiful at uh, someone that she was aware of that was going through a, a tough time. Uh, this woman um, was uh, a volunteer at the games and at the Paralympics and she had a flesh eating disease. And so the idea was to go there and give her a torch and um, tell her how special she was and as she's gonna go through what's ahead for her. We went there to her home, the three of us met up and then we went together into the house and it was filled with neighbors, they were all there to see um, to see what was you know going to going to happen or be said. And Bob, uh, you know, as the chairman of the board, he um, you know he gave a, a good speech and and a talk, and people really responded well. And then this woman who had I think it was at least one appendage, it might have been two, an arm and a leg, that were banded up, knowing that she was going to lose those. And um, she wanted to hear a little bit from me because she said the volunteer uh, effort at the Olympic Games is the thing that gives her hope ahead. That she said that though she knew she was gonna lose her arm and her leg, um, that the courage of the Paralympic athletes, what they did minus key limbs and what she could do as a result of having seen them gave her all the hope in the world. So she, there wasn't a dry eye in there, but she was positive because of her experience with the Paralympics. And it was totally uh, life supporting for her, that experience that she had. So the games have a ripple effect far beyond anything we'll ever fully know. And that was just one that I got to be a part of and a very, very special time. But Bob, that's who he was, and that's who Kathy is. And, um, you know, uh, got to work with him closely uh, on those uh, HR and compensation committee meetings where we were talking about some very sensitive things, some very difficult things at times. And he was always a gentleman, always a good listener, always a wonderful person, uh, very understated. Uh, he certainly, was a very successful businessman and 
and had a, a, a huge role at the games, the chairman of the board, but never acted like always was just down to earth and a, a wonderfully warm person that uh, was a delight to work with. So I was honored to know Bob Garvey. Well, those are beautiful memories and I really appreciate you sharing them. Uh, they were very, very touching, very, very moving. And it really epitomizes what I consider to be the most important aspect of the games, which are the people. Ed, thank you so much for taking so much time uh, giving us three wonderful episodes of stories. I really appreciate it. We're now to the final segment. So let's start with the final song. Well, I'm, I'm going to go a little off track here on this one, Christian. Uh, I love music. And I spent a year recently, somebody asked me, what are my top 10 songs? I've been a, uh, a DJ unofficially at uh, weddings and, and um, also at reunions and so forth. And I love music. And somebody asked me, what are your top 10 songs? I didn't have an answer. I spent a year putting together a very methodical approach. And I now have my top 3000 songs. So rather than the games uh, necessarily, uh, I want to give you my one and only perfect song that had scored 10 out of 10 on four categories. And it's a, um, it's sung by a bass baritone uh, singer. Uh, his name is uh, Brian Turfell. He's Welsh. And he sang a song, and it's a different version of the song than you might hear. But it's uh, played to the, the tune of the um, New World Symphony. And which is a beautiful tune. And then you add to it the, the, the theme. It's about passing from this life to another. And um, it's sung so beautifully. The tune is so spectacular. The words are so meaningful. And it was in my effort to find the top 10 songs. It was the only song that scored perfect tens in four categories. And it's called Going Home. And I would encourage our listeners, even though it may not... Uh, give us uh, thoughts of the games. I think it's just one of those special songs in this world that uh, are worth hearing and bring about emotion that has uh, also been felt through the games. So to me, it's, it's on the same emotional level as some of the great emotions of the games. So I offer that up. All right. Brian Terfell going home. Is that going the home. name of the tune? Home. Yeah. All right. Can I find it on Spotify? Uh, you, you can find it on iTunes. I don't know about, I probably Spotify too, but it's, All it's right. also with the London uh, Symphony. You got to get that version. Okay. With the version with the London Symphony, I will look for it. Okay. And in the worst case scenario that I can't find it there, I probably can find it on YouTube. And so if I cannot yep. find the song on for Spotify, sure. we'll put a link to the YouTube video on my website. Well, I have to say one thing about the music still, because... In the Facebook chat, you had a comment about anything by Casey and the Sunshine Band. Okay, yeah, that was good. And they were a lot of fun. They were yeah. a lot of fun there. So why don't you tell me quickly about Casey and the Sunshine Band? Well, at the close of the games, we wanted to get Team, team 2002 together. And Mitt gave another eloquent, beautiful talk and basically said, these games were very successful. He says that many people take credit for it. And to some degree, that's true. But he says the people that deserve the most credit are you. And he's pointed to all the Team 2002 people that were assembled that night at the medal ceremony, freezing. I don't know if you remember, it was really cold. But up on stage was KC and the Sunshine Band. And they rocked it. They played great songs. And everybody just had a wonderful time. 
but it reminded, it was that closure that the team 2002, for those who were able to make it that night, and I think there were thousands that night, but it was just a special night. And KC brought it, he brought his A game. He had, uh, I think they had uniform or at least jackets on for the Olympics and they were really into it. And they just, every song they played was a home run and people were rocking out, having a great time. And it was a great way to say goodbye. It was, that was a lot of fun. That final, um, thank you. What was it called? What was that? What was that? Was it a farewell, slock farewell or something? Yeah. That slock farewell, that final yeah. farewell, that was yeah. a lot of fun. And so I'm glad that we were able to, you were able to put that together and uh, we had a great time. So I'm going to take a little liberty and throw some Casey in the sh- sunshine band <laughs> on the Spotify playlist also. Okay. Now let's get to food. Yeah. You know, uh, a lot of times we'd work through lunches and someone would typically be designated to go get some sandwiches. So Togo's was a go-to place. You might remember that was tucked around the Wells Fargo building. Um, and that was a real go-to place. Uh, I think Crown Burger, whether the one on is it third West or the other one going East a little bit, uh, both of those were frequented, you know, can't beat a pastrami sandwich from one of those places. And then I think if we wanted to do something a little special, get in the car, a lot of times little America or even grand America would go have a meal over there. But I think there was one, I can't remember. We were in the 257 building. It was a bakery. It was a European bakery. I think it's still there. I don't know if it was Gormandy or Normandy. Yeah. Gormandy's is still there. Gormandy. I just went there yesterday okay. uh, because I, I had a meeting in downtown area and I thought, well, I'm going to swing by Gormandy's and get some pan au chocolat. Uh, so yeah. Yeah. So fantastic. We'll put those on the map uh, for those that are not existing anymore. We'll just put them. Uh, I've got a little list of all the restaurants that aren't there anymore that we like to frequent. But for those that are still around, like Gourmandise and a Crown Burger, of course, uh, we'll go ahead and put those on our map on the website. And uh, maybe you can just give us some uh, final parting words before we tie up our trilogy here, Ed. Well, uh, like Mitt. He has said that that was a highlight in his business career. The Olympics, I don't know how others feel. I th- I've heard this from many, but for me, it was the highlight of my career. I will always be challenged uh, in a profession, and mine's in its twilight years, but I don't think I'll ever do something as meaningful and as fun as the Olympics were. I think uh, the lives it touched, uh, anybody who was touched by the Olympics is a better person for it. I also think that had Mitt not decided to run for governor, and if he had chosen to stay in Salt Lake and kept our team together, we could have done anything. I really believe that, uh, you know, for those who never had a games experience and proved that they could effectively run a part of SLOC, uh, I think those who did so well with the experience, it, it was almost like it almost didn't matter by the end of the, the games. You couldn't tell who had experience and who didn't. They just really performed well. And I think you can take that core talent and apply that in any business venture, any not-for-profit venture, and we could have been successful. There's a part of me that wishes that we could have kept all of Team 2002 together and rocked the world. Well said and a fitting conclusion to our trilogy. Ed, thank you so much for taking the time and really spending a lot of effort to catalog all of these memories 
Now, if people want to learn more about the things that you're doing now, or they want to reconnect and share some of their memories of the games with you, what's the best way for them to do that? You know, just I still have my cell phone from the games, an 801 number, even though I'm living in California uh, and, and going back to Utah. But I, I probably just my email. I was an early adopter and a slow to change. So it's still an AOL account. It's my name, E-T, so Edwin Thomas, E-T-I-N-N, E-Y-N-O-N at AOL.com. Ed, it's been a real pleasure catching up after a lot of years, many years. Thank you very much. Listeners, please like and subscribe to our podcast and we'll catch you soon. Ed, thank you again. Christian, thank you and best of success as you continue this cool project. We love it.